The agricultural industry has been experiencing a quiet digital revolution. Previously analog manual processes are becoming fully automated. Data scientists are applying their craft to millennia old agricultural problems. Manufacturers are cramming farm equipment with digital components. Cows are getting connected to the internet. This dizzying shift in the way agricultural professionals do business is creating profound ramifications for the way operators and manufacturers interact. It's also creating a new frontier for data scientists and cybersecurity professionals to solve critical problems in an industry that makes modern society possible. In this episode, special guests Garrett Bladow and Joe Panatoga discuss the agricultural IoT revolution. Garrett Bladow has served for over a decade as a technical leader at the National Security Agency, leading several cyber capability research and development efforts as CTO for Redacted Incorporated, developing cyber risk management solutions for Fortune 500 and Silicon Valley startup clients, and as a digital expert for McKinsey & Company, building analytics companies for major clients across the globe, and is currently serving as a senior architect at Dragos, a leading operational technology cybersecurity company. A native North Dakotan, he is a co-owner of his family beef ranch. He runs the genetic breeding and land sequestration programs from his home in the Mid-Atlantic region. In his spare time, he enjoys building things at his local industrial makerspace, fly tying and fly fishing, and programming PLCs at the Baltimore Spirits Company. Joe Panatoga spent close to a decade in government and the private sector, both reverse engineering and developing security mitigations for IoT and embedded systems of all shapes and sizes. He is now a graduate student at Harvard Business School and thinks often about how security integrates into a broader business strategy to create value in our ever-connected world. Joe, Garrett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Josh. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. This is a really fun topic. Um, We've had a couple of guests on to talk about various um, features of the IoT landscape. Uh, This one literally involves landscapes, so I'm very excited to to dig into this a little bit. I like to start these IoT-related shows with a simple question that has a lot of directions, uh, and that is, what is an IoT device? Uh, So, Joe, maybe we can start with you and and, uh, give us a sense of what you think an IoT device is. The the controversial question. I tend to, you know, be a little bit, uh, how do you say it, Uh, reticent to uh, prescribe what it is, but but I think, you know, as far as I think about IoT, I, I really think about any anything with a processor in it that connects to other systems. Um, if we want to take internet literally, uh, <laughs> you know, it could, be, it could be any device connected to the internet, but I, I think we could even consider, um, as we consider them for, for security and other research purposes, is basically any device on a network. Gotcha. And um, uh, Garrett, maybe we could uh, start with your your uh, take on what an IoT device is, and then uh, dovetail that into how a seventy five thousand head cattle ranch uh, uses <laughs> such devices. Sure. Um, when I think of IoT, I primarily think of an internet connected device on the edge that's providing data to a more common system that's probably running in the cloud or some data center to produce analytics and outputs uh, or prescribed actions. So with, with sort of that definition, um, we built uh, at my, my farm, L7 Ranch, um, an entire IoT system uh, that is uh, monitoring both our cattle uh, grazing habits as well as 
our land uh, carbon capture and O2 release. Um, so it, it's sort of all tied into uh, a practice now called holistic grazing. Um, and, you know, what to s- describe the system kind of simply, our cattle are all tagged with, um, it's called EIDs, but it's a, it's a specification of RFID um, specific for livestock tagging. And they walk through literal gates um, and there are RFID readers on each side of the gate. Um, and that tracks how long a particular piece of livestock has been in that pasture area um, and how many have been there for X amount of days and times. And then through sort of the inherent knowledge that we have from our range management expert that's employed by our farm, uh, we have a range management expert because we're managing 300,000 acres. Um, so it's about 25 square miles of just pasture land. So they're responsible for making sure that the green the grass is green in the right spots and that we're, we're maximally using that land. Um, and so we kind of took their, their projections and then applied that to a data science model. And now uh, as we track the cattle usage or cattle dwell time on a piece of uh, specific land, we can say that, you know, 50, 50 cows and calf pairs on this piece, this section of land for 90 days is going to bring us down to a half inch of grass, which is roughly where we want to you do uh, promote root growth or root growth in the grass to get that carbon capture and do the O2 output. Plus, it's just you know it's time to move the cattle uh, off of that to another place. So that's when we do roundup and herding, um, which is which is pretty fun right. now because those operations are automated uh, and we've taken gotten so much economic advantage from it. Uh, on our range, just from ranch operations uh, to doing that. Yeah, it's a really fascinating time. I mean, Joe, <laughs> agriculture is like probably 10,000 years or older. I don't know. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a profession that's been around for a while. Uh, transistors have also been around for a while, um, probably close to you know 70 years by now. Um, why... What is it about modern technology and IoT devices uh, that enables a really old profession like this and relatively old digital technology to like create a revolution in 2020? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you have you have two things you have. First is just the the massive communication architecture we have where, you know, Garrett can have these sensors on a farm in, in, in North Dakota and they don't need you know, they can use LoRaWAN or some wireless protocol. They don't need to run, you know, cat fiber, fiber out to the, out to the barn or out to the stable, or I don't know where you store cows. Maybe <laughs> those Wait, are not terms of this is, all, this is all open range land. So it's, it's like, uh, if you, if you've ever seen the, the pictures of the badlands in North or South Dakota, that's where they're running. So it's hilly, hilly land, gullies, petrified wood, pretty desolate. looks like the surface of Mars, but it's, also my favorite place in the world. So <laughs> probably hard to run uh, cat five cable. It certainly is. Um, in fact, you know, they're out, out in our area is uh, the increased fracking boom for, uh, you know, domestic oil production. And they have actually run into the exact same challenges. Can't run fiber or cable out to the, the oil rigs to do monitoring and that. So they're, they really built up uh using kind of our initial pilot stuff as, as a communications vector. So we've got 5G 
out at that far out by my farm ranch because of oil and gas now, um, which is just ridiculous. Amazing. Uh, yeah. When we, when we started, you know, <laughs> the first thing was our, we were using Zigbee uh, as a pro uh, point to port peer to peer mm-hmm. protocol uh, with some super nodes that had two uh, G uh, wireless uh, at the time. Um, and now, you know, we've, we've upgraded that equipment from two G to three G to four G. And now I got to look at whether or not I'm going to do five G around there if, but we just don't have as much data to probably take that that cost vector on, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, so the the innovations on wireless communications have created a ton of opportunities there, right? Right, um, Joe. There's also been, I think, a real um, uh, a, a ton of uh, evolution in the chip sets that we're able to put onto printed circuit boards and the way that we're designing electronics these days so that you can get a tremendous amount of processing power and storage um, on a really tiny uh, on a really tiny board right so uh, what is what does that look like for IOT devices how have you know computers that used to take up the the size of a room now you're able to fit them in in, in the size of a credit card you know what was what were some of the the ways that uh, we were able to to get such tiny electronics and, and how has that enabled IoT? Yeah, well, I, I think we all know about Moore's Law, um, but I think I'd look to maybe a more recent uh, innovation. I think, uh, you know, in the mid-2000s, it kind of started with Arduinos and, and then Raspberry Pis, where what you really started to see was that for prototyping electronics, you now had access to some of this sophistication where you could run like a real operating system. You didn't have to you know, bake your own scheduler on a, you know, AVR or, or PIC-18. And, you know, now, right, we have these ESPs, we have all these different prototype boards. I don't know, Garrett, whether you're using, um, you know, off-the-shelf equipment or whether you're sort of rolling your own, but... We started with a roll-your-own based off Raspberry Pi platforms. Um, and now I actually have particle stamping boards for me. Uh, based off our hardware spec and you know we're using Arduino compatible chipsets for most of that just because the tech has advanced so much. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And particle I think it has like a web IDE, is that right where you can like it, you can it, basically program an Arduino like over <laughs> over yeah, there you don't even need physical we, access. I mean, I'm doing it from my house in Baltimore, right? To yeah. my to my rangeland in in North Dakota 2500 miles away. And I can do over-the-air updates uh, if I want to tweak an algorithm or collect a new value or do whatever. As long as my, you know, we'll call it the sensor platform has the right sensors that I need, I can push new logic with the click of a button and deploy to entire IoT fleet, um, which is which is just yeah. amazing. Like the microcontroller revolution has just created such a profound um, difference in the way that we're able to like iterate on these IoT devices or on electronics because where you used to have to design circuits, you know, analog circuits to do things is tedious error prone process, very different from programming, which some would argue is also tedious and error prone. Um, (laughs) But, you know, you've got a microcontroller now, which you can like update the way that it works um, post-production. You know, you just like either a JTAG or a USB port or, you know, in your case, you know, 4G internet connection, um, you can fundamentally change the way that these electronics are working. Yeah. And the biggest thing for us, and, you know, this is, I think I shared with you earlier, but my, the way I had to explain some of our efforts around why we were bringing technology into the problem, obviously I had to convince a different generation that this was a good idea. 
right? So my my father, who is uh, you know in his seventies now, um, you know, is old school rancher. Cow calf pears are the only things he really wants to ever do in his life, right? Uh, he was mad that he had in the eighties he had to stop farming for a while and you because know, it wasn't making money, and now he's come back and he's doing exactly what he loves, which is raising cattle. And don't let your stupid hippie technology come to me. Um, but uh, the, so the way I had to convince him, so in addition to just our holistic grazing, which is which is what we wanted this technology for too, um, we we it actually enabled a new market for us. Uh, so we are selling carbon offsets based off of the the aggregated data science kind of content that we're producing from our land. Uh, I had to I had to sell it to my father as we're going to sell air to hippies and it's not going to cost you any more money, um, <laughs> and you know and that that was the big point right not not the air to hippies part but the but the it's not going to cost you any more than what we're already doing and with this microcontroller boom that we have like the ROI on the technology itself is getting to a level where you know you don't need seventy five thousand head ranch to to really eke out you know your value from this you know when you're when you're deploying eid tags that used to cost fifteen dollars a cow right multiplied times seventy five thousand times two when you have cow calf pairs so one hundred fifty thousand cattle that need to be tagged at fifteen dollars that's just like no farmer is ever going to do that now we're getting those tag uh those chipsets and those those tags down to ten cents each right that's a no brainer. I can enable my, I can enable with a $5 microcontroller platform sensor and a 10 cent uh, ear tag, which is actually cheaper than the regular, just plastic ones these days, which is funny to me. Uh, but uh, you know, and now we get all of this added benefit where we can even join additional markets like selling carbon offsets on California cap and trade. Yeah, I mean it's it's an amazing world when you start opening up these um, previously totally analog things into the digital world, and it's enabled by a combination of uh, reliable, relatively cheap connectivity, right? Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, Joe, the sort of LoRaWAN, Zigbee, four G, five Gs of the world, um, programmable microcontrollers that uh, you know you can from thousands of miles away um, fundamentally update the way these electronics are are working in the field, um, and uh, and and yeah, I mean like sensors, lots of sensors, the ability to sense and in, in, in some fields actuate, but I guess primarily for 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 you, Garrett, it, it's it's sensing data. Um, so we're col you're collecting all this data. You pull this data back in near real time. Uh, what do you do with it? Where does it go and, and how do you organize it and make sense of it? And, and how does it uh, translate to the bottom line for, for the agricultural community? Right. So uh, the datas are coming in. Uh, we're, we use one of the big major cloud providers for sort of our back end uh, system at this point. We, used to, we originally rolled our own because we started this 15 years ago, but now we've, uh, the tech has advanced enough where it's actually cheaper for us to run in a cloud. Um, but we're, you know, we're getting data from not only the cow entry exits, um, but we're, we're, we have sensors that are literally in the ground measuring O2 levels, carbon levels, uh, you know, moisture levels uh, as we're doing that. And that data comes up to central aggregation point, and then we have literal data science algorithms that are running on it. Um, so the two big use cases that we use today 
Um, number one is optimizing our field operations. Um, so we employ eight cow, cowboys, cowgirls, uh, actually more girls than guys these days, which I'm proud of, um, that are working our ranch day in and day out. Uh, they're, they're responsible for, you know, when the cows are, are, are uh, birthing out in, the, out in the open field, checking up on them and, you know, moving herds when we close effectively a section of the land because it's been grazed maximally. Um, and every morning they receive a report. Uh, a, a printout comes on, on their printer automatic, automatically because they have to take the paper with them. Um, and because the, the, even though there is 5G, there's not cell service everywhere. Uh, so they, they take their paper printout and it's like, all right, this, you know, these 25 cows have to be moved from this section to that section because we need to put more grazing pressure in this area and that one's grazed out. Um, and so, you know, we honestly, we reduced our employee load uh, from, we used to employ 40 uh, cowboys, cowgirls. Um, and now we're down to eight just because of the, the, the data is maximizing our operations and our fields, uh, field science. So that's the, the sort of first case. That's the one that, you know, I was able to sell, sell to my father, right? Because it helped our bottom line. Uh, but the, the second one is uh, the, the land sequestration efforts, you know, commonly known as carbon offsets. So we actually developed a protocol, uh, which is with the lingo of, in the carbon sequestration world. Uh, that says, all right, if we follow these things and can prove, you know, this type of data, O2 level, carbon capture, uh, moisture level. And uh, I think when we when we talked briefly earlier, also methane capture from the cattle themselves, because that is a greenhouse gas. Uh, and so we had to make sure that the carbon capture and the O2 output was still higher than you know, our greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions from 75,000 head of cattle. Um, and so uh, we, we developed at the time, uh, we, we, we employ a full-time vet at, at our farm, uh, a, a methane capture device for cattle, uh, which is as crude as you think it is. It's a pipe that is installed into the cow. Uh, and there was a, there's, a, there's a backpack that they wear that literally captured all the methane gas for 24 hours. Uh, and we did um, statistical sampling um, and and expanded that out to probabilities and did all of this work uh, to meet this protocol that we defined for a ranch land selling O2 credits uh, for the carbon market. Um, that was also an IoT project, the the fart capture machine, um, and uh, you know and all of that data came comes into the same central repository. So if we actually have to ever prove that. Um, you know, our protocol is working uh, to either the the registry owner, the California cap and trade market in this case, uh, we have all the data to back it, including, you know, quarterly monitoring of our greenhouse gas emissions from our from our herd. Um, so it's, you know, that wow. that itself has, has enabled, you know, we actually make, you know, hundreds of K of profit by selling air to hippies, um, which is you know, just, um, we, we were already having the data minus, you know, the fart capture. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, it was really no additional cost factor for us and we're getting additional income because of that. So it's, it's been a win-win. And my father, uh, who says I run the unconventional ranching practices section of our farm is, is ecstatic these days, especially because one, he doesn't have to touch it. And two, it's just passive income that he doesn't have to worry about.
Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I'm sure you won them over the, uh, the the second that those profits started rolling in. Um, even though the, I'm sure the, uh, the the fart backpacks created a little bit of incredulity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He, um, he he laughed at me. Like every time he saw one, he laughed at me for like days. Uh, <laughs> he's like, "This is never gonna work. This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen." I'm like, "All right, Dad, just give it some time." And then he'd bring in all give of his old time. his old school rancher buddies and like, "Look at what this idiot's doing." <laughs> and and that, and that, and now they actually like they all want the system and we've actually we've pushed it out to a couple other ranches in Montana and and in North Dakota now that have you know that have been partners with us for a while. Uh so it's it's fun. It's the network's growing. Yeah. I know it. I mean, uh, this is something we find all the time in uh in kind of vehicle and industrial settings is that like the data that gets generated and, and no one listens to has got so much intrinsic value to it because it's mm-hmm. operational data and it helps you operate more efficiently or smarter. And then in some cases with the, the, the government, there are regulations right there that allow you to get credits for being, you know, more environmentally friendly and, and, and things of the, that nature. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the sensors in IoT that are um, uh, revolutionizing the way that older industries that were previously analog um are, are operating. It's also actuators, right? So there's there's a whole class of technology, operational technology, where rather than just kind of storing and manipulating and pulling data, you're you're actually manipulating things in the physical world. So, mm-hmm. um, Joe, what are some examples of um, IoT devices that you've seen that have you know physical effects in the real world? Sure. So well, there's quite a few, and I know I know Garrett uh, from his bio uh, is a uh, <laughs> PLC uh, programmer as well. And also, I'm sure as Tom at Dragos, he's seen his fair share of uh, programmable logic controllers. I think that's like the clear, um, you know, sort of, sort of the, the the very clear example. There are many others that are salient, like medical devices, but, you know, really anything, almost anything these days that's hooked up to, <laughs> to a piece of electronics that, that that's moving, right, could serve as an example. I know... Yeah many access control systems to, to buildings, for example, you know that you have the magnetic door locks. Oftentimes those route up to a overall building management system, which has some data collection features on it and may be able to be centrally managed over the internet. So even these little, these little things that we sort of take for granted as we're walking in and out of our, our office every day, um, you know, serve, serve as examples in this case. Yeah. I mean, I work a lot with the electrical sector from, you know, my Dragos job and the lights do not come on without IOT these days. Um, and it's, it's really interesting from, you know, the programmatic logic controllers all the way down to the remote terminal units, how much they're instrumenting those sensors and actuators to do everything. Um, and like the, the power plants are struggling because they can't find control engineers anymore. So they've just had to increase technology to automate more and more operations, which increases efficiency, but is also you know, extremely scary from a cybersecurity point, right? If, if uh, we can perform a pen test or not a pen test and literally blow up a substation uh, because we, we flip a switch to buy and bypass the safety systems, a literal switch in a switch yard, um, like that's that's incredible and also scary and stuff that we need to to watch for and and build detections and protections around. Right. 
Yeah, it's. It, I think this is a critical distinction between a lot of IT and OT is, you know, with IT, if an attacker gains control of a system and denies service or manipulates data, um, there can be definitely downstream effects. We saw this in Maersk, for example, you know, like Omnitrax was a, a short line freight operator out west that got hacked and their operations were impeded because they were unable to access information about what they were supposed to be doing. But when you're talking about operational technology, a programmable logic controller or something that's like physically controlling the real world, uh, if if an attacker gains control or gains execution um, or can manipulate the operating characteristics of that thing, like all of a sudden you're, you know, you can you can cause massive loss of life, right? I mean, the, the, right. the stakes are, are, are orders of magnitude higher on these things. You know, and so, since we're sort of on the topic of actuators, right? Recently, there uh, has been an attack at the Oldsmar uh, City uh, water treatment facility, right? So you don't necessarily think of that as as an internet connected system or an operational technology system, but uh, sure enough, an attacker gained a remote desktop to the engineering station, and yep. yet they turned an actuator, and unfortunately, that actuator was the was the chlorine uptake, right? right. So he, putting more and more chlorine into, uh, you know, potable drinking water, making it making it toxic. Luckily, the uh, the control engineer caught what was happening before, you know, something really really bad happened. But talk about a scary situation, right? Really scary. Yeah, and Joe, this is, I mean, a, a, a recurrent cybersecurity theme, right? Like the trade-off between convenience and security. I mean, I think in this case, it was like TeamViewer. Yep. And uh, I, I, this may be just kind of apocryphal, but I heard it was part of, um, potentially the credentials were part of one of these massive, the, the comb, you know, the combined um, combination of multiple breaches, uh, stuff that was leaked out on the, on the, on the, on the dark web. Um, and someone just found this team viewer, uh, instance, or it might've been a disgruntled employee or something, but, um, you know, the, the convenience of having this thing remotely accessible, uh, for monitoring and, and, and control created the attack surface that allowed the attacker to, you know, fortunately this was stopped, but potentially to create like really devastating effects for a whole community. Right. Entirely. Yeah. I think, uh, one example that I was reading about recently, uh, and, and it, I thought about it when you mentioned Marisk is, you know, the reefer containers, all of the refrigerated containers that store our produce that's shipped all around the world. Uh, those are starting to become equipped with, you know, 4G LTE modems as well as GPS and, and other tracking systems so that they can serve data back uh, to the, uh, the customers who want to monitor their shipments on route. And there, there's some interesting possibilities there. And, and I think that kind of goes back to uh, agriculture, as, as we were sort of discussing earlier with, with farm equipment and tractors. We have these things, right, whether it be reefer, refrigerated containers or, or tractors, um, that really are the, the backbone of these billion, hundred billion dollar markets and are incredibly important to not just national security, but you know, food security. Um, it's, it's really sort of difficult to, to imagine uh, the consequences of, of, you know, there being an, an attack to, to that sort of infrastructure. All right. Uh, I think, you know, to, to talk a little bit further about that, Joe, you know, 
most of the new equipment these days comes with, uh, you know, an internet connected diagnostics package, right? And you don't have the option to buy a new tractor or a new combine without this included. And then you have to also pay for software licensing year over year on your tractor, which first of all, beguiles most of the, you know, the, the, the old school farmer market, right? I just bought this tractor. Why am I still paying money for this tractor? Right. Uh, and like, what am I getting from this thing? Let's Garrett, can you help me? This is literally an ask from my uncle, which is, hi, I have a, I bought a brand new John Deere. Can you help me hack it and put the Ukrainian firmware on there so that uh, I don't have to deal with John Deere calling me all the time? I'm like, well, I think it's probably, but you're going to do it anyways. So I will help you do it. Uh, so, uh, so let's not make sure we don't brick a tractor, which is a literal consequence at this point. If if you try to update firmware on your on your piece of agricultural equipment, you may brick a five hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment and never you know it won't run again, uh, which is which is uh, you know scary, especially for people that are kind of novice in microcontroller and firmware and hardware kind of uh, the world, right? Really starting to duct tape and bailing wire fix things um which is right you know because they just don't want to spend the money and that's always going to be the number one driver in agriculture <laughs> right right I made, the, I made the joke a few years ago to a group of friends that john deere had the largest we were all talking about tesla and and uber and you know john deere effectively has the largest semi-autonomous fleet of vehicles and they've had it for quite some time now Auto steer has been a thing in John Deere tractors for at least, I want to say, 15 years, 10 years. 15 and, at least, yeah. Yeah. And and it's hooked up. You see that little green bulb at the top of the tractor with the not only GPS, but the inch resolution RTK sort of terrestrial GPS steering its way. The the farmer can can hang out while while the tractor is doing the work. And all of that is routing up to to John Deere. Uh, it really it really poses some questions as to obviously this is important for the the efficiency of, of farming and creating all those sort of benefits that Garrett laid out regarding his cattle farm. Um, but it is interesting where that data goes, who's in control of it. Is maybe you might you might be a, a sort of industrial farmer and have you know, dozens or, or even hundreds of these tractors and, and manage them individually, but they are all routing to John Deere and, and they do have, you know, a captive, that, that data they do hold to a certain extent captive. I know you can export it, uh, Farmer's Business Network. I don't know if, yep. if you're familiar with that, Garrett, but um, they, they've been doing some things where you can actually export John Deere data and, and use their platform, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that was something John Deere considered holding captive, given their approach to some of this repair stuff we've seen yeah. recently. So I've, I have, in my consulting days, I worked with some of the largest uh, agricultural entities in, in the United States here and Canada. Um, and they are doing exactly what you described, Joe. Uh, they're going to John Deere. They're going to Case. And they're saying, let us into your walled garden because now we can do additional efficiencies and provide value and say, all right, we get this data. I can tell you now that, you know, I can send notices out to my, my agronomist that says this field is being sprayed for grasshoppers. And we know that there's this weather pattern and the grasshoppers are going to go to this section next. 
right? And so we they can actually get ahead of the problem by sending their agronomist out to a specific farmer or or field plot and say, hey, your 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 neighbor has grasshoppers. They're coming to your field next. Let's pre-spray so that you don't have uh you know a famine from the locusts coming through, uh, which is you know incredible that you can do, per, you know. You know, we talk about uh, predictive maintenance on just these vehicles themselves, but now you're having predictive agricultural yield and predictive uh, herbicide and pesticide uh, uh, application to really help your bottom line. Yeah. At what point does like the uh, agricultural community become like Facebook's and then and Facebook and the tractors are free and it's the uh, <laughs> the data that's coming off of them. That's the product, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, what Joe talked about with like this inch level uh, resolution is just incredible. Uh, you know, my, my father, we have, we have invested in auto steer about 10 years ago and have upgraded uh, a few times for our uh, crop raising operation where we, actually just raise feed for our cattle. Um, but, you know, he, the first time we got it, he drove in and he hit the button that recorded his his first uh, field operation. And that same recording he's been using on that field for 10 or more years. And now he just like roughly drives his tractor to the same start point and you hit go. And it, you know, digs the field, plants the field, sprays the field. will tell you if you've missed... Uh, uh, when we when we did a spray operation using that same output, it let us know when we had a four inch miss on overspray application. So we missed one four inch stripe on on a forty acre field, and it was able to tell us you know go back and you know hand spray that area or whatever you're gonna do with four inches, you know when you have eighty foot booms. But still, it you know the the coverage and the ability to give you that information is just incredible. Um, and you know, my, my favorite is my cousins are, uh, growing up and they're full-time farmers as well, mostly in the crop industry. Um, he watches Netflix every day when he goes out, like he, he drives his tractor to the spot. He hits, but he hits go and he just sits and watches Netflix on his phone. Uh, while the tractor does almost everything for him. <laughs> And like he brings his yeah, his I mean these things are way too to, useful. To combine yeah. and and she does the same thing. She just like sits sits there and like does her her work from home job inside of the combine uh, when they're doing harvesting. It's amazing, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So so these things there's there's no way these things go away, right? And if anything, they're going to become more enabled and more connected. Yeah. Um, there's a tension between the OEMs and the farmers about who owns that equipment, who owns the data that's coming off it, uh, and who has the right to repair that equipment when it when it breaks, right? Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of really interesting legislation and lawsuits going on around the country about those sorts of questions. Of when I buy a tractor, do I have the right to repair that tractor or do I have to go to a John Deere certified repair station to do it. Some some folks, as you've indicated, um, are sort of subverting those controls by saying, no, this is my tractor. I'm going to upload firmware to it if I want to upload firmware to it. And the sources of, of those firmware um, uh, are, are a little uh, disconcerting <laughs> because, uh, you know, when you, when you have code execution on, on a device, um, you know, at, at, at a root level like this, uh, you you own that device, really, right? right? What could yeah. go wrong? What yeah. could go wrong? Well, Joe, what could go wrong? 
Yeah, like uh, what are what are some of the things that can happen if you if you gain you know execution on farm equipment, for example, and it's you know connected to the internet. As as we've discussed, the the tractors they're they're equipped to have the the spraying controlled and the planting effectively controlled through a system that you know is autonomous or, or we'll say semi semi autonomous to keep the uh, the regulators happy, but. You know, think about what the consequences might be. I, I saw a fascinating YouTube video where it was just a a John Deere tractor driving down a row, and you could actually see each individual seed being planted. And if it was planted off target, it would alert you. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't, if it missed a seed, like say it didn't make it down the funnel to the to the little actuator in time to to be planted, it would notify you, and you'd get this continuous uh, update rate of your sort of planting efficiency or or how how successfully you're covering the land. Think about if that lied to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I'm not a farmer. I, I'm sure farmers are pretty smart and, and could realize pretty quickly, right? If if something was wrong with their field. However, the question is, is that still too late? And, and crops are a cycle, right? Planting is not at least, uh, you know, where I'm from the Midwest, right? There, there are seasons and you can't plant year round. So if you're even a few days, a few weeks late, that can be pretty devastating to overall crop yields. And yeah. so, you know, given the, the sort of importance of the, you know, food importance, strategic importance of our agricultural system. Uh, clearly, clearly, that is uh, there are potentially some disastrous consequences if you know that can be achieved at scale, right? And and the at scale thing is important because you you uh, you know, let's say you're able to attack one one tractor, you can you know perhaps disrupt the operations of one farm. The the thing here, right, is it's a captive market. There's one manufacturer that, you know, is basically producing these things and, you know, some large percentage of our overall agricultural market uses. They're all connected up to some central data repository. They're getting over the air updates, I'm sure. Yep. The question is, all those devices are the same. So now if you're if if you happen to, say, attack the the, the mothership and you can push you know, malicious updates downwards. Think about like the, the solar winds, you know, attack back in December, or I know it happened before December, but disclosed in December, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't take a long time, right? Days or weeks for, for really terrible damage to, to be done. Yeah. I think there was some uh, reporting around this time last year about like, um, you know, nothing new under the sun. It's like sort of these watering hole attacks. Like, uh, there was a bunch of malware in uh, Android utility apps, like the Techia malware. You know, mm-hmm. you just like have free racing games or free calculator or whatever. And notionally, the app is doing something, but actually it's like committing ad fraud and like, you know, imitating your your clicks and things. So, you know, you produce something notionally very useful, but it has some undocumented features in it that are um, potentially very harmful to you. So if, for example, jail, jailbreaking a tractor so that you can um, get in there and modify things or you're not beholden to paying a subscription to to John Deere, um, obviously has real, you have real incentive to do that sort of thing on your equipment, but that's a ready scalable access vector for somebody like, for example, a nation state who wanted to 
um, hold the food security of another nation at risk um, could could really, you know, you can imagine some pretty awful things happening. Yeah. And what one thing that I find really interesting, um, again, kind of going back to my North Dakota experience, the legislature in North Dakota this year introduced uh, a bill primarily to, to uh, you know, restrict the walled garden concept, you know, at, nationally, it was reported that, oh, they're going after Apple. But that really wasn't the the use case that they were going at. You know, they said, that, you know, they have to let certain apps be on the Apple App Store. Their use case was John Deere, Cat, Case IH. Uh, that's what they were actually going after uh, because they've gotten so many complaints from their constituents who are mostly in the agricultural sector that we can't do the right to repair. We can't do this because they're holding our data uh, hostage, um, you know, at the same time, taking advantage of all of the good things that are coming from it, like predictive maintenance and, you know, fleet management, centralized fleet management, and, you know, no longer having to roll a truck, uh, for repair if, if, you know, it's not reporting an error of any sort, but you know, it's a really interesting to see farmers right. taking the leading stance in, in, uh, you know, open sourcing technology and data, uh, to, to improve their farm operations. And, you know, the, people are thinking that, why is North Dakota going after Apple? You know, yeah, that's one of it, but it's not the main motivator. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. That, that's interesting in that I think right to repair, people often think of as being the, the actual equipment, the hard asset, right? But we're talking about data being this other asset. Mm-hmm. And... I actually voted on it in in uh, back in November. Massachusetts had a new right to repair uh, vote up that was actually saying that automobile manufacturers had to release the data and telematics data from the cars, along with all the obvious the manuals and whatnot that they passed in the right to repair legislation back from 2012. So it, it's definitely it's definitely a cool thing to see how legislation seems to be moving in a direction that, um, you know, at, at least can help mitigate some of these, these issues. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's a, there really is a, a risk of modern day trust issues like the, you know, antitrust sort of trust. Um, because when an OEM collects all of this data, there's kind of like a monopolistic scale built into it, right? If you're collecting data from 10,000 or a hundred thousand, um, uh, pieces of farm equipment, you're collecting data about the operating conditions, about the fields, about all of these different uh, operating parameters that allow you to build a more efficient, uh, number one, build a more efficient machine. Uh, and then number two, bundle all that data for some of the purposes that, uh, Garrett, you were talking about, and it makes it harder and harder for new entrants to come in and unseat an incumbent. Um, and so I, I think, I think it's a really important issue that we need to think about, like, how do you make this data accessible, not only to, you know, make this data accessible to the farmers so that because, you know, they're the ones generating it. And there's a core, I was joking about Facebook kind of, but there's a corollary to this, which is, you know, on all of our social network usage, we're generating tons and tons of data so much so that like the corporations on the other end that are giving us these free services are using that data for, uh, to generate revenue, right? So just like I, I think it's a really interesting confluence of events in very different physical contexts. That yep. there's 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 some common threads there. 
Well, a, a really big common thread here, and, and a couple of the entities have started to get in trouble for it, is that they're they're actually using this data to do um, to game the commodities futures market, right? So I am they the 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 company I forget it was a smaller like uh, analytics company that is no longer in business because they got sued pretty well, uh, but they were they were. Um, they were using all of the input coming back from uh, Caterpillar tr- uh, combines and they were doing predictive yields on the wheat growth, the corn growth, the soybeans market. They knew how much was coming in uh, w- before it even went to market because they were able to capture that data within you know, the, the sensor and actuator information that came back from the combine. So they were, they were like, oh, there's going to be a, you know, there's a, there was a really high yield of wheat this year in Iowa. So uh, let's short stocks on wheat in the futures market. Prices. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they were doing right. market manipulation based off of the agricultural data they were receiving from these larger players. So it's, uh, it, it, it's a scary world. You can make a lot of money if, if you don't have many scruples uh, and, and, you know, with this data. For it, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, there's always a duality to it because on the one hand, it's like, that is a zero sum game where you're sort of, you know, screwing other people out of, out of money because you have an unfair kind of like information advantage. Mm -hmm. There's the flip side of it, which is if we figure out a way to utilize it correctly, we can like even out crop yields potentially, or get ahead of scarcity um, and make plans for, you know, there there are like positive ways of using all this data. So I think it's just a matter of making sure that this data is available for people who, um, who can, you know, serve the greater good rather than, you know, some sort of like myopic optimizations. Yeah. And that the flip side of that is that there are entities that are doing that specifically around crop rotation right, where they're looking at year-over-year yields, either from satellite imagery combined with uh, information coming from these internet-connected agricultural implements, uh, and saying, you know, you've grown soybeans on this field for three years in a row. We really think it would be prime for you to, you know, plant corn this year, because there's so much nitrogen in the soil from your, your soybean output, and this summer is going to be, you know, a hot summer in the right months and things like that, right? So, like, they're, they're using both weather data, data from the crop yields previous and current, um, and doing predictive things to tell you what will maximize your profits and yields if you to plant an, an, on pre-plant. So, it's, you know, it's really amazing right. to see how that technology is, is going and and. Being able, I, I was working with a company that did weather uh, analysis for, for range land, and um, they're getting down to three meter prediction of what a climate will be. Think of think of like a three square meters. I can tell you what that what the climate will be like predictively for this year out of your your hundred or you know two hundred acre field. You know, so it's. You know, that level of accuracy that they're getting from satellite imagery, captured data, um, and applying that to uh, statistical and probabilistic models is just amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. absolutely amazing. And, you know, I think as we become more and more reliant on automation and software, uh, because it just makes so much economic sense to do so, like, 
it's only a matter of time before there's a cyber event. Like I, I, yeah. I it's only a matter of time. So yeah. how do you even begin to think about protecting these things from cyber attack, given that like virtually, you know, I can't think readily of an IT cybersecurity product, like, you know, an endpoint security product or a web application firewall that is relevant to a tractor. Um, how do you, like, how are you thinking about this frontier of cybersecurity and what sorts of mitigations do we as a cybersecurity community need to start thinking about and putting in place? Yeah, we primarily uh, uh, preach observability as your major indicator for what could be wrong, right? So making sure that, you know, at the lowest level that you're able to to manipulate, so the firmware or the, the products that you're loading in, are you monitoring the right stuff? Are you monitoring the correct state of your, your processes, your systems? And do you have what we call canaries if something is out of spec? Um, and, you know, I was working with some of these larger companies uh, that are producing, you know, these IoT connected agricultural devices. And we bake that in all the way down to the core. You know, it, wouldn't, it wasn't like that. 15, 10 years ago, right? But in the last five years, they've, they have hit, hit the, you know, oh shit moment of, yeah, what we've done is great, but it's also scary. And now we need to protect it. And the only way we can protect it without losing functionality is observability. I think that makes a ton of sense. And uh, there's a parallel here between the way that IT cybersecurity systems grew up um, and uh, what we're seeing in some of the OT settings. Like, you know, in the 70s, a bunch of academics figured out how to wire some computers together. And that Ethernet IP-based network became the way that the world communicates. Totally unsecure protocol from like its first principles, but we figured out ways of glomming security onto the side of it. Um, You mentioned starting to bake security in working with the OEMs so you can design from first principles. One of the things about these OT assets, as, as you know from your day job at Dragos and and, and running uh, you know, a, a very uh, digital forward uh, agricultural operation, is that these assets are around for decades. You know, like mm-hmm. it's not like a phone or a laptop where you know you're recycling these things every couple of years. These things are around for decades. How can we how do you think about going back to these OT assets that aren't going anywhere? Um, in protecting them uh, from cyber attack, how do you how do you bake observability uh, into a system that's already uh, already been uh, produced and out there in operation? Right, I mean that's most of our customers here at Dragos, you know, in the manufacturing or uh, electric, uh, elect, yeah, electric generation. You know, these things. You, you think of a nuclear power plant; it's built, and that technology doesn't get moved for 70, 60, 70 years. Right. So, what do you do? Uh, and that's that's sort of uh, observability is our is again our our only really uh, mitigation to that is you, you install sensors you watch the data and some of this you know they they picked up in the OT world right you have you now have historians in your SCADA network uh, you know that that are capturing every input and output down to the RTU level uh, the remote terminal unit level um, and you can do predictive analysis of what is out of scope and what is not. Again, if your systems aren't lying to you, like uh, like Joe brought up, right? Um, so uh, it, you do have to sometimes walk around and actually put eyes on the equipment to make sure it is doing what you want it to do. But at Stuxnet, um, you know, I, I remember reading that there were uh, 
bogus sensor values getting thrown off of the uh, off of the centrifuges so that the operators didn't know that they were operating out of spec, right? So trusting, uh, being able to trust your systems is a, is a real problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other part that, that we really look at, especially in the OT environment, is segregating your operations from your safety systems, right? They don't, you know, the, the world used to be never connect your OT stuff to the internet. Um, and I'll tell you from our, our, you know, Dragos's perspective, every team that we've sent out to do an assessment of an OT network, every one of them, whether they thought so or not, was connected to the internet. So it, it's just, you know, it, it's just a fallacy to think that you're, you're going to get away with it by doing, you know, complete air gapped systems. Cause when it's air gapped, yep. someone's always going to work around it. Um, so what we, what we talk yep. about is isolation of, you know, critical operations, safety operations should be all on their own segments so that, you know, if one is impeded, the other so, does not, uh, does not, you know, suffer the same out- outcome. And, uh, you know, so there's that, there's now OT firewalls and things like that, that get put in place down all the way to PLC levels. Like most of the PLCs are uh, what they call DIN rail mounted, right? So they're little, little units and, you know, they, they don't go in a, in a rack like you'd think at a data center, they're getting hung up on a wall on like almost a little hook. Um, and they, you know, most of the major vendors in the OT market, Siemens, ABB, Allen Bradley, they have purpose-built firewalls that you can plug into that PLC bus and it will protect the communications down to the RTU now. So you, you, know, you see that the, the major vendors are adapting to this new world, uh, but you know, it's, it's really looking for you at your data, making sure that your operational specs are within norms um, and walking around every once in a while to make sure that that is outputting what you think it's outputting. Yeah, Joe, you've spent quite a bit of time uh, red teaming these systems. What are your thoughts on some ways that we can go back to legacy assets and try to keep them secure, or at least once the security gets breached, know that they've been <laughs> breached so you can remediate? Sure. I, I think everything Garrett said is is right on the money. I think, you know, one one big part that is still missing from the equation, and perhaps it's because I have a certain affinity to it, is is actually thinking about the endpoint. And obviously we need secure development practices, but you know, really getting to the transparency, I think a unique factor about OT systems and ICS systems is how proprietary they are. And you know, in order to have real observability, you have to, I think, begin to shed some of that at least aura of, of, you know, it's this impenetrable, you know, walled garden sort of Fort Knox that we have. And, and you actually need to provide some transparency to your users and your customers. So right on Garrett. And, uh, but I, but I do think there's, there's a little bit, a little bit more to the puzzle. Yeah. That security through obscurity model that most of these OT vendors have had and enjoyed for, 30 or 40 years is, is no longer protecting them. Um, in That's fact, right. it's making it much harder for defenders to actually defend their operational technology networks. Yeah. Cause the, the vulnerability researchers are going to figure out a way through that veil. Um, you might as well level the playing field for the defenders. Right. Right. 
So, um, well, Joe, Garrett, I really appreciated uh, you guys taking the time out to come on the show and talk about uh, internet-connected cows and the future of um, agricultural IoT. Uh, thanks for coming on, and I look forward to having you on again really soon. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. Right on. Fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.